0: Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast for the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm your host, Daniel Link. And while unfortunately, uh, our good friend Cameron Sui isn't available today, good news. We have another guy named Cameron who stopped by. Uh, His name is Cameron Tremblay. And he is a cinematographer, a director of photography on a movie that other Cameron introduced me to a while ago called Black Mountain Side. It's a Canadian indie horror film that came out in 2014. And Mr. Tremblay here, Cameron, as he'll be, I'll be calling him for simplicity's sake for the rest of this episode, he was the DP on that. And I was really intrigued by his camera work on the movie and the look of that movie overall. So I'm very happy to have him on. So hi there, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Ah, No problem at all. I actually just rewatched the movie last night to kind of prep for this episode. And yep, there were definitely still some shots that stuck out, especially that very first one, the opening shot kind of. From a lower angle, but up at the vast mountains. And that's the word that comes to mind when I think of this movie is like the vastness of that landscape. Yeah, yeah. It's just it was we tried to capture it as best we could for sure. Yeah. So I was reading up on the filming locations and while this is set in like the northern Taiga Cordillera. I'm mispronouncing that. I'm not I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> it's supposed to be set in the Yukon, uh though from what I understand you filmed in and around uh Lumbee, British Columbia. That's right, yeah. And I guess for those who don't know, that's uh near Vernon. Mm-hmm. And
1: if people don't know where Vernon is, then that's uh it's like sort of I guess four or
0: five hours northeast of Vancouver into the mountains. Yeah, so maybe not like all the way out in the wilderness like this movie is set, but pretty close within reason where you can still get a film crew up there and have extras and all that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely out there. Mm-hmm. We we didn't have a cell service where we were, <laughs> so, you know, that's it's it's out there in some way, you know, shape and form. We had to drive down a road for about 20 minutes before we could get cell service, so
0: Oh, great. It felt like the uh, Arctic. Yeah. And like the movie is set at this research station, like an archaeological dig site, not too far below the Arctic Circle. To kind of sum it up as Cam originally explained it to me, The Thing, like John Carpenter's The Thing, but set in Canada. And this is the thing that actually got my attention with a lot of restraint. And like The Thing, I love that movie to death. It cranks stuff to 11 pretty quickly. Whereas there is much more slowly building tension in this movie. So stuff doesn't really kick into high gear until in and around halfway through. But that works absolutely to this movie's benefit. So quick plot summary as it's set in an archaeological dig site, very remote. There's about eight main characters, uh, various professors, engineers, commanders working at this dig site. And they uncover... Uh, Ancient structure. They say that it's kind of related to Clovis, which is like a Mesoamerican pre-Indigenous peoples in North America people. Uh, But they find the structure is extremely old, like Ice Age. It goes down very far. But by unearthing this thing... They release a kind of pathogen that at first seems purely biological and infectious, but as the movie goes on, that takes on more of an overtly supernatural element. Was it like working in extremes up there? Like I can see that it was snowing, snow covered in every shot and snowing in several, but like, did you have to deal with like some pretty severe temperatures, like take safety of precautions? Um,
1: it, it never got like super cold. It was probably, I mean, at nights it got cold. So when we were doing night stuff, it was chilly, but... We were actually sort of challenged in that uh, we were we were concerned that we might be losing snow losing snow because they, oh. it was an unusually warm uh, winter in Lumby. So, because we had we myself and and Nick, the writer director, we had scouted this probably that earlier that summer. And we were just like, we asked the people who, who run that site, you know, how much snow it usually is. And they were like, oh, tons, like around that time you'll have tons. So we're like, okay, great. And then when we were driving up to the location, there was actually a period, I think between Vernon and Lumby, and it was quite a long period where there was just no snow and it was sort oh. of like, almost looked like a desert. And we we're like, oh, this is scary. <laughs> we have like a crew of people following us. But then once we started to get into the mountains, Cause like even Lumbee is not as like mountainous as to where we were actually filming. Cause mm-hmm. the, the actual spot we were filming was about 20 minutes east of the actual like town of Lumbee. So we were kind of outside of the town by about 20 minutes down into the mountains or up into the mountains. Yeah, um, yeah but once we got there, there was a lot of snow, but there were days where it was abnormally warm and sunny. Um, so the snow was kind of starting to melt in uh, and sometimes and then and then another day it would just like snow a lot and we'd have tons of new snow so it was sort of difficult as far as consins- consistency and keeping continuity so we would sometimes shift inside and film inside and then wait for it to snow or whatever but there's I think one shot for sure where you can kind of see that it's clearly warmer than we want it to be and it's like You can see there's like drips of water coming off like the snow on a roof line. Um, But other than that, like, I guess typically it was it was in the like minuses. No, it never never got colder than minus 10 for sure. It was like minus five probably was
0: the average. So it wasn't it was definitely not extreme. Yeah. So discomforting, but not a public health risk, basically. No, no, definitely not. It's kind of funny that you're basically having to contend with the whims of nature, which is very thematically appropriate, given this movie, which is kind of about a nature that has a will of its own and has like no care for the well-being of the poor dudes stationed at this uh, research site. You mentioned Nick. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, this film was written up, written and directed by Nick Shastakowski. I feel that's probably important to mention. So, uh, yes. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, I mentioned before the, the vastness of this location, and one of the things I really dig about. What I find interesting about Canada is that you have this massive country. I think after Russia, it's the second largest landmass per country in the world. But much like Russia, most of it is completely uninhabited because once you get above like a certain latitude, it's just one of the most inhospitable places on earth. And even though you weren't shooting all the way up there in the territories, it definitely conveys how like huge and uncaring that environment is. Yeah, yeah,
1: it definitely is uh not prejudice. It's just like, you know, it is what it is and doesn't doesn't matter, you know, what you think of it. It's it'll just do what it wants to do. Mhm. Uh
0: somebody noticed about the look rewatching the movie last night is like how high the contrast is in those exterior shots like to the point where the whiteness of the snow is very overpowering, but that is yeah. completely accurate. Like not even being out in the Arctic Circle, but just being here in Ottawa, there are some days like on a clear winter's day where you just barely see outside because the light's just reflecting off the snow everywhere. It's like uh, sn- snowblind or whatever, right? I think they call it,
1: isn't that when the sun's reflecting off the white so brightly?
0: Oh yeah, like people stationed in Antarctica like they have to wear special like sunglasses, what have you. So it definitely contributes to that idea of like oh. You are kind of at the mercy of this environment. So, like, director of photography, like, or cinematography, like, that's mentioned pretty much every opening titles of any movie ever. But I think, it's like to the layperson, it's not really clear what role the director of photography has in establishing the look in the film movie. And so, I'm just curious if you could lay out kind of like how you worked with Nick Shastakuski to kind of establish how that movie looked and felt.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the look and whatnot of the film, we actually discussed for a long time. We, while he was writing the script, we would sit down and have long conversations about, you know, films we liked and different styles we liked in general. We talked about references. So we developed the look while he was sort of writing the script uh, and hashing out ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, and that that's sort of like the creative process, at least for us. I don't know that that's always the case uh, on every film. I know, like, obviously, the director of photography... You know would typically get a script, and I'm sure they sit down with the director and talk about it, but I don't know if it's usually during like the writing process per se, so for us, that's how kind of we were doing it as far as the look of the film we we did uh sort of borrow from from different things I'm sure if you've for the people who have seen it, you might notice that there's a lot of uh sort of i guess you could say shots that were. Uh, borrowed from like the shining or at least influenced by the shining would not necessarily borrowed, but like we, we really dug the following shots in yes. the shining it's sort of just, uh, it puts you right in there. And especially in the shining, you know, you're following Danny going around a corner and you're, you're suddenly just shocked at what he sees also. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're with him on his little three-wheeler. Same goes with, uh, with, uh, Jack Nicholson's character, obviously, but, um, yeah, so we were. That's that's sort of like a huge inspiration for for as far as like the look of the film mm. on that end, and then as far as like lighting style that I kind of uh, worked with was, and I don't know if you've you know done much reading. I think I've mentioned it before, but I mean it's an obscure write up, so it may not be super known. But uh, I, I borrowed a lot of my techniques for lighting based on the social network, uh, oh. which is an odd an odd uh, reference, but that's sort of, they shot it also on a red. So we shot on a red Epic. Um, And I don't remember if they shot on a red Epic or the Scarlet. I can't remember. They always get a camera (laughs) ahead. They always tend to get a custom made camera unlike the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) So um, they may have had like a custom made Epic. I can't remember off the top of my head, but we use that as sort of like a reference to how to how to sort of go with lighting that and and in in the social network they tend to use a lot of natural sources in the frame to film Mm -hmm. uh the actual characters and we did the same with like cine bulbs in fixtures so you know like lamps that are just in the room or Mm -hmm. or whatever so we tried to draw a reference using that and i think
0: it worked pretty well personally yeah actually i'm I've been taking a lot more notice of lighting, especially in horror movies over the last year or so. Ever since I've seen, did you check out The Witch? Yeah. Yeah. I saw The Witch. Yeah. Yeah. Which is similarly filmed out way in the boonies of Canada, but they relied heavily on natural light there too. And I find that if you have like the most natural light, if you're able to kind of replicate what that like the exact sort of lighting and diffusion that character would be seeing in that moment, it puts you in their shoes all the more. So it's yeah. lighting kind of establishes empathy in a way. And so I'm always very keen to pick up on how movies take uh, make use of that. Like there are some exterior nighttime shots in this movie where you have like the camp just lit by, say, this industrial light over here or, I don't know, maybe like a fire over there. And you realize, oh, if I was out in this research camp in the middle of the night, all the way out in the middle of nowhere, this is how it would look to me. And actually, that is kind of terrifying. Yeah, I mean, we we
1: definitely wanted things to drop into into black. You know, like uh, we, did, we did our best to light with the sources that we've created and established in the scene. That's why there's like, we tried to avoid as best possible the sort of like blue uh, moonlight kind of, thing as as best we could. Like Hollywood nighttime,
0: that kind of look.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're trying to give it a more real nighttime feel, um, which is like, you know, when you walk out and you don't have a flashlight, you can barely see anything.
0: So yeah, I was camping a few months ago and that was my experience at nighttime. If you do not have a flashlight, you are completely in the literal dark. So it was nice to... See a movie take advantage of that as well. You did like mention like a couple of the tracking shots, like the where you follow a character kind of like just behind their shoulders for like a lengthy period, and that's actually yeah. that technique is used in like two of my favorite scenes in this movie. Uh, the first, I'm going to do a bit of a scene breakdown for the benefit of the listener who maybe hasn't seen sure. the movie or who maybe wants to appreciate it a bit more. So, in this one scene, I'd say around. Halfway or so of the movie, the camp leader, Jensen played by Shane Twarden. He's walking through the camp, the camera's mostly following him either right behind his shoulder or maybe just pivoting him around him as he takes his stroll across the yard. Off-screen, Giles played by Mark Anthony Williams, he's stressed and he's angrily cutting wood. And yeah. this, this the scene opens of him like screaming every time he drives his axe through a piece of wood, but the camera mainly focuses on Jensen as he strolls and there are two sounds you hear in this movie this scene the first is giles off screen screaming every time he drives his axe through the wood and then there's this very raw drone in the background it shows up in certain scenes and this movie is almost it is actually completely devoid of music either diegetic or non-diegetic so yeah. you're just kind of overwhelmed by these two sounds and the tension is building and you're figuring it's going to have something to do with this off screen axe swinging. And the camera keeps following Jensen, keeps following him until he enters the cabin. And suddenly the camera angle shifts. And we see another of the team members, McNaughton, played by Timothy Lyle, sitting down at the table, having just recently cut his hand off. And the camera shifts that angle almost exactly as Jensen realizes what McNaughton has done. And so. It's a weird way in which the tension has been building through this camera shot, but then it's been misdirected. Like you would think that the, the tension is going to be releasing in one direction and it comes from a completely different angle. And I think a key part of that scene working is that camera following Jensen for the duration and putting you in his shoes.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's cool. I'm glad to hear that you had that uh, reaction to it. I mean, uh, with that interesting little tidbit on that chopping wood scene is that was actually not originally scripted um i don't remember i don't remember what was in place of it i'm not even sure if there was a scene that was supposed to start like like that and kind of fade into sort of jensen's world uh, Mm -hmm. if we'll say like from from one setting to the next but um it was while we were on site it was very like in in the cabins where where we were staying, we actually had to chop wood and and keep the fire going to keep the pipes from freezing at night, so we oh. actually had to so there was people chopping wood every now and again to make sure that the fires didn't go out in each cabin because that would be bad, obviously yeah um, and uh and I think one morning, Nick got up and he and I were staying in a cabin together with another gentleman who was our editor and our editor was uh, cutting wood on the front porch, and he could hear, like Nick woke up, and he could hear it echo into the sort of vastness of this landscape in this sort of uh, valley in the mountains. And he was like, oh, that's cool. And then he kind of like, what if we had a scene where Jensen, or not Jensen, Giles is chopping wood, uh, sort of like releasing some, you know, tension or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the situation, and we're like, "Oh, that's great! Let's do that." And uh, I don't remember if we shot it that day or the next, but it was like, "Let's let's do this as soon as we can." And then, and then I think we were not sure where it would place at the time, mm-hmm. and then we found it in editing that it kind of worked perfectly for like to to be happening while Jensen's doing his walk, and sort of like, "Oh, Jensen's hearing you know Giles be a little bit crazy too with his war cries." and and it's sort of like it's it's just like he has no idea what's about to happen and neither does anyone you're just kind of like what's going to happen something's going to happen but what is
0: it you know yeah like it's building tension but also keeping you guessing and also yeah i'm kind of in love with the idea of of like the folks on set getting mark williams to chop wood for them and do an extra bit of work while he's already technically working while acting so that's very funny to me <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: I'm like, sure that I'm sure that lumber was used later that day to, to keep
0: the fires warm. <laughs> yeah, actually, like Mark Anthony Williams as Giles like shows up in two other like kind of key shots in that movie for me. The first is after the very sudden nighttime scene where uh, Wells, played by Steve Bradley, is infected and they all have to hold him down, amputate his arm, and cauterize the stub. And then the immediate following scene is just Giles sitting outside having a smoke, looking absolutely haggard in its yeah. complete silence compared to the preceding scene. But it's just this quiet little moment of someone just reeling in the horror that's suddenly unfolded there. And then the other example being towards the climax of the movie where Giles just goes on the shooting spree throughout the cab- cabins. And it, at least superficially, appears to be a single unbroken take shot mostly behind his shoulders as he strolls through the yard and like shoots everybody he comes into contact with was it like yeah. a proper single long take yeah it was
1: it was a uh, almost a 4 minute oneer and that was that was always planned i think it was initially mm-hmm. planned to be longer so nick and i we would when we were discussing the the look and and feel of the film we also would discuss shots for certain scenes and uh, we always had a plan for the climax of the film, that scene to be a really long oneer. Yeah, so we we always planned for that, and we actually planned. To, I think it was almost a full day to itself in its entirety because we knew, like technically, the page count of that scene was was pretty long i mean it was long because probably nick was describing it a lot but i guess technically speaking if it was only three and a half minutes it should be about three and a half pages but i think yeah i think the way it was written it should have been like i think he wrote it and it was probably closer to six or seven pages i can't remember but anyway and as far as like page counts go tv shows and movies they have different rates at which they shoot mm-hmm. per day and to try and stay on schedule but for us we were like okay we're just going to set aside a day to get this and essentially the reason was it was a huge setup as far as like light lighting goes. So our lighting team had a, had a lot of work to do. And then, and then obviously a lot of rehearsals for our camera team to get everything right along with our, our sound team. Cause we like, you don't see it, but like following Mark as he's going around from cabin to cabin, there's the camera operator, obviously. I believe the focus puller was behind him as well, and then the mm-hmm. boom operator. The boom operator was running a wireless boom and hiding behind him. And <laughs> I didn't see it because uh, I wasn't, like, I was, we were all, ba- like, basically the whole crew had to had to hide, so we were hiding. So, <laughs> and N- Nick and I were watching on monitors, I believe, in the upstairs of one of the cabins. I remember my uh, sound mixer, Adam Pisani, saying to me later that, he was like I know you didn't see it cuz you guys were too busy watching the monitors he's like but I was watching out of the window on one of the takes and he's like uh our boom operator had to do some crazy matrix moves to get out of the camera at times <laughs> and i was like oh i wish i had seen that that would have been great <laughs> um so yeah but it it was a it was an insane setup and it was a lot of takes um mm-hmm. but uh it was it was cool i mean it was I, I think we definitely achieved what we were going for. I think even our camera operator, um, though he was, like, we worked him to the to the bone, I think he loves that shot. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably one of his favorites. I don't know. Maybe he's done something better now, but at the
0: time anyway. <laughs> like I was, like, kind of personally sitting in awe watching that scene. Like, I was definitely impressed by the technical aspect of that because, again, I'm thinking about the crew following. I'm thinking about... It's like four or five actors in that scene who all have to hit their cues at specific marks. And on top of that, it's just a flatly horrifying scene of someone going over the edge and deciding to put everybody out of their misery at this climactic moment. So it's, even though I've basically spoiled it in depth, it's like maybe the (laughs) standout scene in this movie. And it's like, if I were to recommend this movie to people, it's like, Oh, it's like, you know, it's nice winter horror. It's like a, very Canadian. it's Got the like wide variety of like nuanced Canadian accents that I kind of love, and then on top of that, you have this singularly horrifying shooting spree moment. Yeah, and I
1: mean, again, it's it's sort of like that following thing. So you're, you know, you're almost participating in it. You know, as an audience member, you're 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 right there behind
0: uh, Giles. And then, like, the perspective actually kind of shifts partway through that scene. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, yes, it does. Because then as soon as Jensen takes a shot at Giles, the camera starts moving over to him.
1: That's right. And then you follow and see the aftermath kind of thing uh, with with Jensen. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Just thinking about the lighting a bit more, I just realized one character who generally benefited from that is a character I don't even think has a name. Cameron and I have just been calling it Dear God. Yeah, this is a recurring figure throughout the movie is like a completely erect bipedal deer that the characters start hallucinating, maybe even genuinely seeing after they've been infected by whatever this pathogen is. And on very close inspection, you can probably see how much of a prop this thing is. It is a very stiff, like completely bipedal deer, but it works not just because of the use of sound and the voice that this thing has been given, but the way it's often placed in the very background of shots and how largely obscured by the shadow it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was
0: uh, it was a challenge lighting that for sure. <laughs> um, it's like, how do we disguise the fact that this thing is a prop while also kind of highlighting like how potentially scary it could be?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think the first time the audience sees it sort of up close, I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, the first time the audience sees it up, up up closer is when he uh Carl's character who I can't remember his name Manrow, off the top of my head. Francis Monroe yeah that's right so when uh when Monroe goes into the cabin there <clears throat> he that's that was the first time we actually shot the deer i think ever come to <laughs> think of it I, yeah yeah definitely so that was the first shot we had to do with it even before we did like these long shots uh, sort of just like establishing the deer earlier in the film, (laughs) we did those later. And I think we ended up doing that shot over three different times. So we did it once, uh, it took a bunch of times, uh, and we're like, okay, great. We got it. And then I think Nick and I watched the dailies later that night and we are like, no, it's not working. And then, so we would then have to, then we scheduled it for another day, did it again. After doing some alterations to the deer and how we, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. and then shot it again, and then we were like, okay, great, we got it. Watch the dailies again. We we're like, no, we don't got it. <laughs> uh, and then, and then we did it a third and final time. And I believe we actually did that. I can't remember now. I want to say we did that on the like latter half of the uh, Giles Warner. So like mm-hmm. we on that on that day when we were doing the Giles Warner, we actually finished ahead of schedule. And then we took lunch, and then we decided to do that pickup again, so that's mm-hmm. when we finally got that but yeah it was it was a challenge for sure. It was like how how much light essentially could we put on it without like you know giving weird shadows and whatever it was It was a challenge it was like mostly lighting around him mm-hmm. or sort of not even around him, but like lighting other objects just slightly behind him, and like barely any light
0: on the deer itself to try and kind of mask it as best possible in the shadows. Personally, it paid off because as soon as the movie ended, that first time I watched it, I'm like, I'm going to go take my evening walk and then to kind of walk into the park in my house and feeling very ill at ease as I scan the tree line. So yeah, it paid off. Uh, nice. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That's good. Other Cameron and me were interested by this one aesthetic. Like we don't even have a name for it really, but it's just, recurring horror imagery that's come up in a lot of the stuff we've watched or played like in case of video games, where just stuff has, they make use of antlers in a way that is very creepy and unsettling. Like they use that imagery in true detective as well. And in the video game, Witcher three. So we still have yet to put like a name to that kind of aesthetic, but kind of black mountain side is part of it. So it's something strange that I've noticed now, um,
1: as well, but it's something I didn't notice before. And I don't know if it's because of Black Mountainside was a big part of my life for a while, that now I'm noticing sort of antlers everywhere. And (laughs) I I, like, it may have been there before, but now I'm like, oh, look, antlers. Oh, antlers. Look at that. It's a deer. Oh, a deer. And like, it's everywhere. I mean, I remember when we were doing post in Black Mountainside, I believe the, the TV show Hannibal came out. Yes. And and I started watching that a bit. And I think even in the trailer, they show like a deer in like, and I was like, what the hell? Like, where, where is everyone coming up with like this, these deer imagery? Like, what I thought we had something original. And then here we are, like, there's a deer there. And then True Detective came out later and there's a deer in that. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on? Like, and I think, I think we were out at the same time as, or True Detective, I think came out. Uh, that was 2014. Our too. actual. Yeah, it came out before our actual like wide release, but it, we were in festivals at that point. So at that time I was like that's so weird. And I even somebody like somebody reviewed and compared Black Mountainside and True Detective and I was like that's an interesting comparison. And it was a really interesting read actually this this one essay. I can't remember the dude who wrote it, but it was like a blog online that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's like just thinking of stuff that comes to mind. It's like your movie True Detective the Witcher 3. Recent video game that came out last year called Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. uh, Hannibal. And actually, so the video game that Cameron worked on, uh Rise of the Tomb Raider, and the D- the Baba Yaga DLC he did for it, the art team included a lot of antler imagery as well. So it's just popping up everywhere. And it's kind of inexplicable. But now I want to kind of focus on that, like, as part of my larger work. It's funny like no one was like consciously working together to make that imagery pop off, but it just kind of did within the span of say like a year or two years. Huh.
1: Yeah. It's weird. And then I remember, I think when the witch came out, not that they have a deer, but at the very end of that movie, I think their the goat starts talking or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember going, this is so strange. Like what, I, like, what are the odds that like, uh, and I believe they were trying to play it off as sort of like a, satanic like a goat imagery satanic sort of. goat yeah yeah and i guess spoilers for that movie as well yeah. but <laughs> um i remember that happening and going oh great now we have like another sort of like similar because that was a slow burn and mm-hmm. and that it ended in like you know sort of a pretty dramatic fashion as well that's the way i like horror personally but yeah i was, I was like well, now we're gonna get comparisons to the to the witch if like and you know, the witch was very popular. <laughs> Black Mountainside has has a following, but it's not nearly
0: as uh, as big. Hopefully this whole episode will put on people's radars a bit more. But yeah, I'm just thinking of this look now, like antlers, bones, the forest, woods. It's like kind of like this fear of nature, like nature of its own agenda or like gone fallow or toxic in some way. So yeah, yeah. I guess there's something to be said about that. Huh. So uh curious what you're working on now or like in the near future Cameron
1: um well, Nick and i ha- have shot uh another film mm-hmm. um it's it's in post production right now oh um so it's it's in the can as they say, but uh it's now just going through sound designs some visual effects so we're getting we're getting near the end for sure but mm-hmm. uh it's a bit of a long process as I'm sure you could tell by maybe- i don't know maybe looking into Black mountain side so to see how how long yeah. it took for that to kind of see the light of day as they say, but yeah. Hopefully it'll be seen somewhere in 2018, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Is there a title up for it yet? Oh yeah. It's it's uh currently called Hammer of the Gods. That's a pretty good title. <laughs> we'll see uh we'll see if it stays. I think it
0: I think it might stick. Um but yeah. Yeah no I'm excited for that. Like you two made a really good solid first impression with Black Mountainside. So telling everybody about that. It was funny when I was first watching Black Mountain Side, I think Cameron was connected with you on Twitter at some point. And I started live tweeting the movie. He's like, hey, do you want me to tag Cameron Trombley into this? I'm like, oh, I'm kind of wary. Like, what if I end up not liking this movie? And it's going to be really awkward <laughs> yeah. if he sees my yeah. live tweet in the middle of that. But I think it got to the scene where they have to amputate Wells' arm. And I just messaged him like, yeah, tag him in. Yeah, I think I'm going to like this. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember finding that live, uh, tweeting and really enjoying it. It's always great to see how people react to the film. Um, I mean, it's definitely polarizing the film. Like some people love it and some people really don't love it, but, uh, it's great to see when people really connect to it. Cause it's, that's what we're going for. It's like, mm. I know that, I know there's a audience out there that is really into this kind of thing. And it's just yeah. a matter of finding those people. And
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, Horror by its very nature is polarizing. Most people won't go near it because they don't like stuff that is unpleasant or scary. And then True. from yeah. person to person, it varies like what scares people. What are like the specific fears they're going to tap into? Like I'm not one for say jump scare stuff, but I find the slow burn stuff like Black Mountainside, The Witch, The Black Coat's Daughter really effective. So yeah, it's just, I guess, finding that audience. Uh, so Black Mountainside – Uh, is available to rent on YouTube at the moment. And it brought to mind two kind of wintry works of short-form horror that aren't necessarily related to this movie, but they're related to a very similar one, John Carpenter's The Thing. So the first is a music video that came out, say, a decade or so ago. Uh, The song is called... Driving This Road Until Death Sets You Free by a French duo, Zombie Zombie. It's a music video done as a short film uh, that is basically the thing remade in stop motion using like old 80s G.I. Joe figures. And on its surface, that sounds really goofy, but they play it very seriously and it works with this kind of creepy electronic song over it. So, I'm going to recommend that to folks listening. Uh, Driving This Road Until Death Sets You Free by Zombie Zombie, directed by Simon Gesrell and Xavier Eretzman. And the story is basically a piece of fan fiction about Carpenter's The Thing. It's written by Peter Watts and it's called The Things. And it's essentially The Thing told from the perspective of The Thing. And my goodness, I have said The Thing so many times in the last minute. That can be, re- <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually really effective short story with like a final sentence that kind of sends a shiver up my spine, so I'm going to include a link to that it's at clark's world uh so thank you very much, Cameron, for helping me set this up and taking time out of your day to uh talk about Black Mountainside, which again I can't recommend highly enough
1: yeah no happy to uh happy to be here and uh if people do want to see it it's available on multiple platforms now, I think it's on uh, Xbox, PlayStation, oh, like you said, YouTube. It's also on Google Play. So if you have Android devices, yeah, it's getting out there. Yeah. I'm, pr- I, I'm
0: sure. I'm, oh, iTunes. Is also, it's also on iTunes. Yeah. I think yeah. Cameron watched it on Amazon Prime as well. Yeah. Yeah. If you have Amazon Prime, it's free. <laughs> if, if you want it physically, the DVD is still available on Amazon. So you can give that a shot. Uh, yeah. So thank you everyone again for listening. And remember. If it gets too scary, you always have the power to press pause. Hope you have a nice one.